introduction. Good evening all to the weekly huddle. My name is Anup Agrawal. I'm an interventional cardiologist at Care Hospital Hyderabad. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the huddle, Dr. Praneet Palaburi. The huddle is our audience level interaction where we discuss a variety of uh, things mostly related around uh, healthcare. And we typically pick a topic and or a clinical case and then we restrict our discussion around that topic. The basic premise is to bring our casual hallway discussions to a more organized platform like this one. And uh, we share our ideas along with it. And uh, while we do want to talk about science, uh, we are mostly interested in uh, bringing out the practice patterns and understand uh, why you make a particular decision that you do in your uh, daily activity. So uh, with that, this is our 31st session where we are talking about uh, stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. And as a cardiologist, this is uh, something very common that we see in our daily practice. I do want to remind that Huddle is not a speaker and audience model, rather an audience level interaction, which means if at any time you have any input to share, you can just unmute yourself and give your input. As a courtesy, uh, we may request you to wait for others to finish their thoughts before you unmute yourself. So having said that, I'm gonna get started with the clinical case. Typically the format of the huddle is, I start with the clinical case. I ask my colleague Praneet to give his input. And then we open it for discussion for others. Because it was a cardio neuro topic, I also was hoping that few of the neurologists would join us so that we can have a multi-speciality discussion. So while they do join, we are gonna continue with our discussion. So here is my uh, clinical case. And uh, Praneet, I'm going to ask you two questions around this case. Number one is how common or uncommon you think cases like these come to our practice? And one, second, how would in your uh, best clinical judgment, how would you manage this patient? So uh, the patient details are follows. <clears throat> this is a 74 year old male he has got a history of long-standing diabetes, probably going on for around 20 years. Uh, he's hypertensive, coronary artery disease on medical management, and for that, he takes a single antiplatelet clopidogrel. Uh, he was diagnosed atrial fibrillation around four years ago, and he had been put on warfarin since then, which he takes very religiously. He occasionally complains of orthostatic hypotension, but he says that is manageable, and uh, most of the time, uh, with his behavioral changes, he's able to combat his symptoms. Unfortunately, around two months ago, he was admitted to our hospital with a fall. So essentially what happened is at night, he woke up to go to the bathroom and probably he woke up a little bit faster. He woke up and uh, after immediately after he took two, three steps, he felt dizzy and fall down and hit his head to the side of his bed. He did not lose consciousness or anything. He just felt dizzy momentarily. Uh, on arrival to the hospital, we diagnosed him as subdural hematoma, neurologically stable. He required surgery because of uh, the expanding hematoma, but he recovered from that quite well. He was in sinus during uh, throughout uh, uh, the stay. I believe he stayed for around uh, four days or so. His INR on arrival was 3.2, which was reversed, and his anticoagulations were held during the entire episode. He is now following upon with me after two months. So this admission was two months ago. He's ambulant now. He doesn't have any active cardiac issue. No chest pain, nothing else. He's feeling okay. He's off anticoagulants and antiplatelets for these two months now. 
he did get a three day holter, which I advised him to get before he sees me. So he got a 72 hour holter done, which showed few runs of asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. Rates were controlled mostly around 100 to 110 when he would have atrial fibrillation. His sinus rates are in about 65 to 70. His rest of the clinical parameters are within normal limits. I'm not telling you all the other lab findings and stuff, but whatever I'm not telling you, you can assume it to be normal. If there is any particular question, you can ask me. He is taking statins, beta blockers, and uh, ARB, among others. Uh, he's, he's obviously on diabetic medication. Once a while, he still has got these orthostatic symptoms, but that is not his issue. He says, I'm, I'm fine. It's just that when I don't pay attention and when I get up a bit er fast, then only I get the symptoms. His blood pressure at home ranges mostly 140s to 150s sitting down. And uh, his blood pressure at the OPD was around 150, diastolic around 86, uh, 88 or so. So this is the patient, Praneet, who comes to me after two months, uh, CAD on medical management, atrial fibrillation, paroxysmal, with high CHAT score, uh, recent uh, intracranial bleed uh, because of probably orthostatic hypotension, uh, no arrhythmia whatsoever. His both clopidogrel and warfarin are held right now. And now we need to decide what are we going to do for stroke prevention on this patient, understanding he also has got other comorbidities. So 74-year-old male, uh, I would get your opinion, Praneet, what would you do in this patient? Yeah, good evening, everyone. So, Anup, the first question that you asked me about uh, how common are these uh, uh, group of patients or the patient with these kind of symptoms, I, I would say it's almost uh, quite common. This is something which you very frequently see in uh, your OPD practice. Uh, almost all the risk factors and uh, every time a probable diagnostic dilemma, whether it is a uh, stroke uh, versus uh, syncope, uh, transient ischemic attack uh, versus arrhythmia-related issue. Again, uh, uh, this patient, uh, of course, had a, a trauma, uh, the fall leading to injury that is producing subdural hematoma rather than subdural hematoma producing his uh, syncope. Sometimes uh, finding this becomes difficult uh, because even in the patients who are on anticoagulant, they sometimes have uh, subdural hematoma presenting uh, as a, a probable uh, loss of consciousness or altered sensorium or whatnot. So this patient probably we expect it to be trauma related uh, subdural hemorrhage. Uh, but yes, so uh, at one end he has all those risk factors which put him at a higher risk of uh, uh, stroke and uh, equally an indication. Uh, to give anticoagulation at the same time he has a bleeding issue where you have to stop anticoagulation most of the risk factors they do have or um, share both from the bleeding aspect and also from the ischemic uh, complications aspect so i would uh, still try to see here i would say more in favor of orthostatic hypotension being the culprit uh, producing all and producing the event uh, I really doubt whether he's had a transient ischemic attack. So I would be tending to favor giving him more of uh, giving anticoagulation. I would be tilting more towards that and uh, try to um, titrate his antihypertensive medication and try to counsel him uh, taking care about his orthostatic uh, hypertension. That would be my take on this. 
And Pranit, if you do want to start him on anticoagulation, what would you start? Remember, you have to answer both for antiplatelet as well as for anticoagulation. And would you tinker around with his blood pressure a little bit? What would you do? His his uh, resting blood pressure is around 150 by 88. Yeah. So um, for stroke prevention, definitely he needs anticoagulation. Maybe I would be preferred to switch over to newer oral anticoagulants because uh, the time in therapeutic range for warfarin or the vitamin K antagonist is variable. So sometimes you can still have uh, higher INR or lower INR. So I would be preferably switching over to an, uh, a NOAC with a less bleeding risk, preferably be an apixaban, half dose. 2.5 BD, uh, just as some studies show it to be having a lesser bleeding risk. Maybe uh, stop his uh, single antiplatelet which he is receiving uh, because his coronary artery disease seems to be stable, though he has risk factor. So I would uh, take that risk of stopping an antiplatelet uh, and continue a low dose uh, uh, epixaban, 2.5 <clears throat> BD. Regarding uh, hypertension, uh, yes, again, uh, in this age group, we want to aggressively control, but not at the expense of postural hypertension. And if postural hypertension is bothering me, then I would be um, happy to uh, or be more liberal in stopping or reducing his antihypertensive medication or give him a short dose antihypertensives probably in the morning and uh, skip his uh, longer acting antihypertensives which may produce postural hypertension during the uh, night time. So in these kind of patients, what would be your drug of choice for antihypertensive to reduce uh, postural hypertension? I told you he's on beta blocker and ARB. Huh. What is your drug of choice? So I may switch over to uh, shorter acting uh, calcium channel blockers. Something like uh, uh, shorter acting uh, uh, nifedipine or uh, something like that, that uh, retard formulations, which uh, usually act for six to eight hours, uh, preferably giving him in the morning and skipping the night dose where he's more prone to uh, hypertension, something like that. Perfect. Thank you so much, Praneet. And uh, with this, we will uh, invite uh, suggestions of others. And uh, I'm still trying to see if I have a neurologist in the group. So far, I don't. Uh, Dr. Chandramukhi, if I could get your impression, I will uh, recite the clinical case summary to you, and then if I could get your impression. This is a 74-year-old guy, diabetes, hypertension, CAD on medical management. Two months ago, had a fall, probably related to orthostasis. Uh, hit his head, got subdural hematoma, got better, all good. That is two months. Now he's coming back to your OPD. He is not had, he's not on clopidogrel, he's not on warfarin. Uh, at the time of fall, his INR was 3.2. Now, of course, it is normal because he's not taking those medication. The question here is 74-year-old guy with this kind of background. Do you think you would put him on stroke prophylaxis? That is number one. And number two, if you do put him on stroke prophylaxis, what would you choose? Now, just to give a background, his CHAT score, if we calculate, is going to come around uh, 3 and that three would put him at an annual stroke risk of somewhere around seven to 8%. So not insignificant, certainly a number that we need to think about, but certainly not a score of five or six where it's pretty high. So ma'am, patients like these, uh, how do you play? Do you put, put them on drugs? If you do, what? 
Hello, good evening, uh, Dr. Anup and all. Uh, this, uh, did this patient have atrial fibrillation? Yes, so this patient has atrial fibrillation. Sorry if I missed this. He was diagnosed four years ago, and he has okay. got paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Uh, yes, so with the history of atrial fibrillation and with a very, like a TADVA score of three, so I would certainly like to put this patient on oral anticoagulation. So as already Pranit has mentioned, uh, my choice will also be uh, newer oral anticoagulants, uh, especially Epixaban or Rivaraxaban uh, 15 mg OD and Epixaban 2.5 mg BD. And uh, uh, as uh, orthostatic hypertension was uh, like thought to be uh, responsible for his uh, syncope, as already has been mentioned, his antihypertensive drugs needs to be addressed carefully. And definitely, I would like to add oral anticoagulation. And uh, as Pranit said, that his uh, CAD, like it is stable. So we and he's having a, like any uh, uh, sub, uh, some bleed was there. So for uh, temporarily, we can stop the antiplatelets and put him on oral anticoagulation. And later on, once the bleeding issue is sorted out, we can again switch over to clopidogrel 75 mg uh, OD and uh, either rivaroxaban or epixaban. Thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Uh, one discussion point that I do want to bring uh, is uh, whenever we talk about uh, oral anticoagulation using warfarin acetrom versus the newer anticoagulant, one thing that we have uh, seen from the both randomized trials as well as observation is that uh, efficacy-wise, these drugs are a little bit efficient and a little bit efficient means uh, let's say if warfarin reduces your stroke risk by two thirds so i would say maybe let's say 60 65 percent or 70 percent then uh, adding novac reduces the stroke risk by 10 percent more so we are talking about somewhere of the order of 70 percent to 80 percent so certainly there are still 20-30% patients who are left uncovered when uh, these patients are given anticoagulation, either in the form of uh, warfarin or in the form of RVK or Novax. Having said that, the situation where Novax outshine uh, VK is in the risk of spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage or intracranial hemorrhage. So these are the patients who didn't have an injury. They, on a random day, they got uh, intracerebral or intracranial bleed. So spontaneous intracranial bleed, if you look at the rates with NOVAX are almost half that of rates with VK. So whenever we talk about the safety profile of NOVAX over VK, we are mostly talking about spontaneous bleeding, particularly inside the brain. Uh, whether switching from VK to NOVAC will reduce the risk of trauma-related bleed or not, which particularly in this case that we're talking about, uh, that part of science is not very clear. So I believe with both Dr. Praneet and Dr. Chandramukhi, we have one consensus opinion that they would like to anticoagulate this patient. Uh, and the choice is uh, NOVAC over VK because patient had a bleed on VK, I don't necessarily know if that NOVAC would add any benefit in the long run or not, because if this guy falls on NOVAC, he's going to bleed again. 
but regardless at a baseline novak is better than vk so one could question that four years ago when he was put on warfarin he should have been put on novak to begin with so switching from vk to novak i just want to highlight that when you talk about bleeding related to injury uh, that bleeding risk is more or less going to be the same whether a patient is taking novak or whether is whether patient is taking vk but as a general i agree in this patient uh, novak is going to be better so that was my a little bit of uh, uh, data behind i'm going to keep asking opinion is there anybody in the audience who would not anticoagulate this patient knowing that he's a 74 year old some orthostatic symptoms and as we know this is one kind of pathology that you can never completely get rid of these patients they will have once a while this problem uh, that is not going anywhere and atrial fibrillation is also not going anywhere so anybody who would who would do things differently they can unmute yourself or raise their hand and while you gather your thought i'm going to invite other people to give their thoughts we have dr shirang with us uh, dr shirang i i think you joined late i'm just going to give you a brief summary of this case 74 year old guy diabetes hypertension atrial fibrillation medical managed cad two months ago had a fall got subdural hematoma and uh, at that time all his anticoagulants were stopped he was on clopidogrel and warfarin that was stopped now he comes back after two months of follow-up he's doing fine uh, he's getting paroxysmal atrial fibrillation the question is should we anticoagulate him yes or no and if you do want to anticoagulate him what do you want to do and is there any other stroke prophylaxis that you would like to do on this particular case dr shirang if you if i could get your opinion on this dr shirang you are unmuted but i cannot hear you Maybe your mic is off or something like that. I cannot even hear the noise in the background. Dr. Shirang, we cannot hear you. Okay, uh, sir, we are gonna get back to you. Uh, let me invite suggestions from or comments from other people. I cannot hear you, sorry, Dr. Shirang. I'm I'm muting you. If you could just check your mic once, please. Okay. Uh, doctor, I have Dr. Gaurav here. Dr. Gaurav is one of our um, uh, DNB uh, residents. He's a final year uh, resident with us. Exam going. Dr. Gaurav, you probably have uh, more uh, recent uh, more uh, uh, recent data with you than because we uh, get in a habit of not reading the most up to date data. Uh, Dr. Gaurav, what is your impression if this patient comes to you? Would you anticoagulate this patient? Yes or no? If you will anticoagulate, how will you anticoagulate? And if there is anything else you would do? You could please unmute yourself and share your thought. Dr. Gaurav. Uh, good evening, everyone. Sir, uh, in uh, looking at this current scenario, uh, I would like to go with uh, NOAX only, first of all, because uh, there is uh, less chances of bleeding risk compared to VKS. So, uh, Apixaban is the uh, most preferable in low dose, sir. And uh, uh, second thing, uh, later on, uh, once patient gets stable, uh, we could thought, uh, we could think of this uh, antiplatelets 
and uh, uh, other management and uh, say a third thing sir we have to look for this uh, orthostatic hypotension in this case so uh, orthostatic hypotension cause must be uh, uh, ruled out first and that should be managed and uh, regarding anticoagulant uh, i would go with this apixaban only uh, no x the category sir Thank you, Dr. Gaurav. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Shankar here with us. Dr. Shankar is a general physician, and it will be uh, very nice to hear his perspective on this. Dr. Shankar, if you could unmute yourself, I hope you have heard the clinical case that we are discussing. Question is same to you. Would you anticoagulate this person? And if you do want to anticoagulate, how would you do that? And if there is any other thing you would do for stroke prevention, by the way, I am, I am, I'll tell you my opinion. I don't want to anticoagulate this patient. So, and I'll tell you, I'll justify my opinion later on, but I'm looking for uh, some takers. I'm looking for anybody who can support my decision. Dr. Shankar, what would be your take on this case? Uh, he is uh, an old man uh, with the atrial fibrillation with the Chardvac code uh, around three. I definitely anticoagulate him. Uh, Preferably the Novax uh, are the preferable choice, uh, especially either Rivaraxaban 15 milligrams per day. Uh, the, in taking into consideration of his age, you know, diabetes and hypertension of long-standing duration, uh, probably there may be compromised uh, renal uh, clearance also, uh, creatine clearance also. So I preferably give a low dose. Uh, Rivaraxaban, 15 milligrams per day, uh, taking into consideration of his uh, adherence or compliance, or Apixaban, 2.5 milligrams twice daily. Uh, but uh, uh, how to tackle this orthostatic hypertension in this case? Uh, uh, somebody suggested uh, uh, nifedipine. But the calcium channel blockers are more prone for hypotension. More uh, uh, orthostatic uh, syncope also quite common with them. With them. But how to tackle this? So we should take other non-pharmacological measures. And if possible, is there any role of midodrine uh, that I want to take opinion of uh, the house? Thank you. Thank you so much, sir, uh, for your opinion. Uh, really appreciate. We have got Dr. Amir with us. Dr. Amir, if you could share your thoughts about this particular case. I am looking for at least one vote in my favor of not anticoagulating this patient. Dr. Amir, what would you think of this case? And uh, how would you approach if you could unmute yourself and share your thoughts? Dr. Amir, you will have to unmute yourself. I'm not sure if you're able to hear me. Probably uh, I'm not audible to him. Uh, Dr. Praveen, Dr. Praveen is an assistant professor of cardiology at uh, Osmania. Oh, he was in Osmania, sorry, now he joined somewhere. Uh, Praveen, uh, you came late. I'm just going to give you a brief summary of the clinical case we are discussing. I would request your opinion. 74-year-old guy, diabetes, hypertension, CAD on medical management, atrial fibrillation for four years on warfarin, 
two months ago gets uh, a fall, probably related to orthostatic hypotension at night, gets subdural hematoma, stays four or five days in the hospital, gets better, anticoagulant uh, platelets, uh, antiplatelet are all stopped. He's fine now. After two months, he comes to my OPD. His holter shows paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. I have to decide whether I need to put him back on anticoagulant or not, or what should I do for stroke prophylaxis for this patient? Warfarin versus Acetrom versus Novax versus doing nothing versus doing something else, and what to do with this antiplatelet agent. So, Praveen, if you could share your thoughts. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, uh, so I'm uh, Dr. Praveen. I'm working at Khamam, uh, actually. I'm not at this night. Hello? I got confused you with a wrong, with a different Praveen. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. I got yes, you confused yes, with a yes, different. Yes. Please go ahead. Please, Dr. Praveen, go ahead. Uh, in your history, it's like the patient is a very elderly, frail patient and uh, who had a recent subject. I don't see, uh, I will be very cautious in anticoagulating him. Uh, I may probably not anticoagulate him also. Uh, regarding his orthostatic hypertension, that, that is definitely because of his underlying medication, which like to adjust them and try some non-pharmacological non opinion. Medocrine, I don't think the medocrine will be helpful for this patient in this setting. Uh, regarding his, if his subdural hematoma, it's not progressing and small uh, AF. I would be very cautious in anticoagulating in this patient. Because the chance of hematoma and recurrence are very high when compared to the risk of uh, stroke, provided his diameter and other things are within normal limits. If there is some LA diameter enlargement or any other structures, then I would think of going with a normal form, no arcs rather than arcs and other things. Thank you so much, Dr. Praveen. I am uh, muting you. We have got Dr. Rukmini with us. Dr. Rukmini just joined. She's a, a neurology consultant. Dr. Rukmini, I'll, I'll uh, review the case with you and then we can uh, get your opinion. <clears throat> and uh, this is a 74-year-old guy with diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease on medical management with a single antiplatelet diagnosed with atrial fibrillation four years ago, for which he was put on warfarin, and he was tolerating it very, very well. He has periodic episodes of orthostatic hypertension, which he's able to manage for most part well without any problem. Two months ago, he woke up at night to go to the bathroom, and uh, he felt dizzy, fall down, hit his head, got subdural hematoma. That is when he was admitted to our hospital. INR was 3.2 at the time. He was, uh, his uh, anticoagulation was reversed, antiplatelet was stopped. He underwent a mini craniotomy, uh, decompressive craniotomy, got better, and he was discharged in about four or five days. Now he comes to me after two months of follow-up. In fact, our neurology colleagues uh, sent him to me. Uh, he did get a Holter done, which shows uh, he has got paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, rate controlled, no other problem. His baseline blood pressure sitting is around 140, 150, and he takes a beta blocker and ARB for that. So the question that is for us was uh, how to put his anticoagulation and whether we should even consider stroke prophylaxis in these kind of patients in a 74-year-old guy because 
no matter how much we control this orthostatic hypotension, there are going to be these episodes, particularly at night when they wake up without a lot of uh, thought process into it and they get dizzy at that time. The question of whether metodrine is going to help to combat orthostatic hypotension. So two questions for you. One, uh, as a neurologist, can you do something for orthostatic hypotension? And B, uh, how worried you are for stroke prophylaxis in this patient? Is it something you would like the patient to be on and how we can mitigate this bleeding risk in the future? Uh, Dr. Rukhli. Um, thank you, Ashley. I'm sorry I joined late, uh, but um, it's it, this is a difficult uh, scenario, but it's a very common scenario, actually. It is, I mean, you have to choose between the devil and the deep blue sea, basically. So, yes, a person with 74-year-old with a paroxysmal EF, the chance of stroke is there. I mean, and he would, if it was not for the fact that he had orthostatic hypotension, and I mean, I think if there was no orthostatic hypotension and he had no falls, I think everybody would agree that he has to be on uh, anticoagulant. I think that point is uh, already, I think, established. And he has EF. So the question now comes that he has orthostatic hypertension, he has a fall, and he has a traumatic subdural hematoma. A, a subdural hematoma is um, a difficult, uh, I mean, it's not such a, uh, it, there is, so the, in an older individual who is more than 70, you have a subdural hematoma, the, um, and you evacuate it, and the risk of subdural hematoma, subdural hematoma will always be there. Even with minor trauma, if he doesn't require to actually uh, fall down and get injured to get a subdural hematoma, even with a small trauma, the, the space, the once the space develops, there is a chance that he could bleed back into the same space again. So that risk is there. Um, so it is a big risk, but um, I mean, so it is like you, it's um, it's and. So the, the second thing is orthostatic hypertension. The question about how to control his orthostatic hypertension, I think uh, in the last, uh, we had had a discussion on modifying the antihypertensives, giving him salt and water, put keeping his head end up, probably adding midotrin, again, keeping in mind that it could cause a supine hypertension. Um, I mean, and checking all the drugs that he's on, See whether we can actually mitigate the orthostatic hypertension. If he is not mitigating the orthostatic hypertension, probably asking him not to go to the bathroom. I mean, I think this is something which I keep telling my patients. If, if there's a risk of them falling down, I tell them not to go to the bathroom at all. They can use a can and, uh, I mean, have a bedside can to pass urine in the night. It is actually much more safer and much more easier for everybody else concerned with them. Now, with that in mind, if the AF frequency is very fast i mean very um, i mean um, it's i mean if there is a clot somewhere he's already had a tia i would think that i would put him back on the anticoagulant telling the patient attendant that it is like this i mean it's a high risk i will probably put you you may have a bleed again so that would be my contention because i've seen patients who developed a stroke after uh, stopping the anticoagulant i mean that's always that's a risk. so you have to take the risk you have to take the risk between having a stroke and um, having a bleed. If you have a non-traumatic bleed, there's definitely it's a contraindication to put back on anticoagulant. You cannot put the patient back on anticoagulant. So that's how it goes. It has to be individualized. I mean, I'll have to look at the patient, talk to them, see how they are going to manage in him in the house, and then only take a call on it. Thank you so much, ma'am. Uh, Pranita, I have a question for you. 
this whole discussion about a patient who have some chondriotic disease putting Novax having some so-called inherent antiplatelet effect, so you don't need to give antiplatelet to these patients when you put them on Novax, how much do you buy that? And patients particularly who have got diabetes, hypertension, and established CAD, how comfortable you feel uh, in stopping antiplatelet in these cases? So, uh, newer anticoagulants having antiplatelet effect, um, yes, I heard about it, but uh, when the coronary artery disease is high, when I particularly when we did an intervention, I would be definitely depending on an antiplatelet but versus someone who did not undergo any revascularization and uh, he's been quite stable for quite some time, maybe uh, one, two years uh, down the lane, uh, I would be comfortable stopping uh, antiplatelet. It's like balancing that ischemic uh, uh, risk that this patient have. Uh, but I would try to look them as an anticoagulants only without uh, whatever antiplatelet effect that they are going to offer to me. I still would uh, like to take on the antiplatelet if the patient is indicated. Uh, so maybe more data with that uh, compass trial also uh, trying to say about those anticoagulants having an antiplatelet effect and all. But uh, for me, uh, for me, I would uh, try to see them as two different classes. Uh, if the patient is indicated to be having antiplatelet, I would still be edging more on giving him an antiplatelet. Thank you so much, Praneet. And I have reserved the best for the last. Uh, we have Somaraju served with us. Uh, Dr. Somaraju, you have been there uh, in the discussion since the very first minute. Uh, you heard everybody uh, opine uh, about this particular case. I would like to get your opinion. And again, the questions are the same. Uh, would you anticoagulate this patient? Uh, and if you do, uh, how would you do that? And uh, other stroke prevention strategies? Dr. Somaraj. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Anup. Uh, number one, first thing uh, I would uh, say, we have a concept called causes of causes. The original combination of warfarin plus globulogrelin in this patient was uh, wrong. Uh, whoever did that was wrong. And that should not have been done. The subdural hebrama couldn't have happened without that. There was no indication for an antiplatelet plus warfarin in a 74-year-old person uh, with no stent uh, in and no uh, indication for specific... Uh, that was wrong. That was the beginning. And then now in the present situation, if you ask me, uh, Dr. Pranish said uh, he would give calcium channel blocking. Atrial fibrillation and uh, stroke of any kind and drug problem, ACE inhibitor, the ARB are the drugs of choice. And uh, whether this patient requires any antihypertensive is a different issue. But calcium channel blocker is not to be even thought of. And secondly, if we give an antihypertensive, give it in the morning time, not in the evening or afternoon. And uh, I would like to rule out uh, after to see the pnea for him. And uh, I also want to know whether he is taking any drugs for any benign prostatic hypertrophy, etc. And uh, 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 having said that, the first requirement in all these situations is do no harm. I agree with the neurologist who said uh, the chances of a rebleed are very high in such patients. And then, if you are giving any anticoagulation of any kind in this patient, uh, 
the tendency for a 75-year-old person, the vascular system is in a state of continuous tendency to bleed. And uh, the body systems try to prevent the bleeding by clotting mechanisms. If you want to give any anticoagulant, like newer anticoagulants, you are talking about that is harming the patient. And then I will, uh, uh, in this present situation, it's not an easy thing uh, uh, you are dealing with. And uh, talk to the family, not to the patient, all this. And uh, expect, uh, find, uh, try to find out what they expect out of it, what are the issues, what are the problems related to any form of therapy we give them, and ultimately go by that. And I will not give him anticoagulants, oral anticoagulants of any kind. If at all I give him, I may give a single antiplatelet or even nothing for a while. And I would want to rule out an osteoclusivipnia in him. And I, you didn't tell me the partial hypotension, you said, you didn't tell me what is the standing blood pressure. Thank you so much, sir. Your, uh, so to answer a few of your question, he is not taking BPH medications. Uh, and uh, when I checked it in my office, his standing blood pressure was not that different. His, his sitting blood pressure was 150. His standing blood pressure was 140. So at least... So the partial hypertension is not there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would say don't take shelter on it. And... Uh, the faults in elderly people occur even without partial hypertension. And uh, try to rule out astrocytopenia. Don't start him on any oral anticoagulant. And uh, in case uh, you want to give anything, give him a single antiplatelet. The drug of choice for control of his hypertension is AC inhibitor or ARB. It is shown, neurologists will tell you that AC inhibitor ARB in uh, hypertension plus uh, atrial fibrillation. There is evidence in the literature that they reduce the incidence of stroke. And uh, uh, if you give anti-hypertension, give it in the morning or afternoon, not in the evening, but time. Thank you, Anup. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. And uh, uh, so just continuing on that, uh, I was looking for at least one vote to not anticoagulate this patient. I got one vote. Uh, Pranit, if I may dare to call you again and uh, ask you, uh, you heard Somaraju sir say not yeah. to anticoagulate this patient. Yes, yeah, so I want to hear from you about uh, your uh, role or your take on why do you don't want to anticoagulate this patient. Oh, so, you know, uh, while I do subscribe to the do no harm kind of uh, strategy, I personally think that not anticoagulating a patient with a stroke risk is also to a certain degree harming the patient. So sometimes not doing may also harm. We should look at the secondary causes of everything that we discussed going from obstructive sleep apnea to the sleeping posture to why the guy is falling and also to look at his room structure, house structure to see what we can do. Uh, get rid of all the hurdles that happen. Sometimes carpet rug is there. Sometimes there is a lot of barriers there. And also to install handrails wherever, uh, whichever are the touch points to make sure even if at night they do have a fall, at least they are able to break their fall. So all of those things and vitamin D deficiency in elderly is certainly established factor 
corticoid falls, so uh, we certainly should uh, uh, replace their vitamin D level. So all those reversible factors we do talk about, but uh, having said that, not anticoagulating patients with a stroke risk of about 7-8% annually, uh, to me, that is also doing harm, particularly if the life expectancy is more than five years. If the life, life expectancy is short, then I wouldn't do anything. And in this particular case where there was no any other organ damage, I would expect him to live more than five years. And there, I do want to do stroke prophylaxis, but I'm scared of anticoagulation. And I do agree with Samaraj said that, that it is difficult. Uh, Rukmini Madam said the same thing, that uh, giving anticoagulation is scary. These guys, they may bleed just by doing nothing. And uh, truly speaking, one of the reasons why I brought this discussion uh, today is to... Uh, uh, you know, sir, sorry to interrupt you. Sir. Uh, I said shared decision-making, fit with the family and regulations. Absolutely. Absolutely, sir. I think that is that is very relevant. And truly speaking, what we are discussing right now in my opinion, that is what we should be discussing in the OPD with the patient and the family in terms of what we are choosing and, and what not. But uh, to complete my point, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up this topic was to talk about non-pharmacologic measures of stroke prevention. And that could be atrial fibrillation control, that could be fall control, that could be all of this, but also to bring into notice a uh, role of catheter-based devices in these non-valvular atrial fibrillation, particularly those patients where we are stuck between rock and a hard place uh, for anticoagulation. So one of the questions now we are going to digress a little bit from the main clinical case, although uh, uh, the case scenario is going to be the same. The question is going to be role of catheter-based device therapy to reduce uh, stroke risk, particularly devices like Watchmen or devices like uh, amulet devices, where you can give them stroke prevention. Uh, if you look at the data set with NOACs and with the warfarin, we are talking about stroke prevention, pre stroke risk uh, prevention of about uh, 70 to 80%. With devices also, they are more or less the same. In fact, most of the devices they would talk about stroke prevention of about or risk reduction of about 70-80% uh, at par with anticoagulant, certainly not better than anticoagulant. And uh, the whole idea being that you can put a device and then you don't have to give an... Now these patients, they may still have stroke, but at the same rate as what they would get while getting anticoagulation, minus the risk of bleeding. So one of the things I actually wanted somebody to bring this up in terms of non-pharmacologic measures of, stroke, of reducing stroke risk. And uh, I do want to highlight a few things which I already said. Uh, lifestyle measures, reducing AFA burden, uh, making sure they're not vitamin D deficient, uh, making sure they don't have sleep apnea and all this, which predisposes them to more fall, uh, making sure they do uh, limb strengthening exercises so that they can break their fall while they're doing it, changing their home scenario in such a way that they're fall risk reduces, and even when they fall, they have something to catch upon so that they can break their fall. So while we do all of these things, uh, we should talk about, and that is my opinion, and I would be uh, opening this uh, after a minute or so, about 
should we be thinking of doing catheter based device closure of LA appendage using devices like Watchmen or Emulate in these kind of cases? Uh, understanding that the procedural risk of these procedures currently is about somewhere of the order of 0.5 to 1% procedural complication. We are talking about pericardial tamponade uh, requiring intervention and uh, device symbolization and so on and so forth. Uh, but 99% uh, of the time when you get a procedural success and uh, more than 80% of the time you get clinical success at one year. Remember clinical success at one year is not 100% because some of these devices, they do have residual leak. So if you look at stroke prevention of these devices, they are at par with anticoagulation, not better than anticoagulation. So Praneet, this is my take on it. I'm not comfortable anticoagulating this patient but I'm not comfortable leaving him alone as well because he does have stroke risk. And if I don't want to do any harm to this patient, then I don't want him to bleed, but at the same time, I don't want him to get a stroke. So what is your thoughts on it? And then I will ask uh, anybody in the audience to give their thoughts about what my strategy is for this case. Pranit. Uh, some of the uh, things which uh, are which I learned uh, recently based on the probably not related to this case or uh, seeing the other trial data and all the age related risk of bleeding is going to be more or less uh, constant but the ischemic uh, risk is going to be probably uh, varying depending on the amount of risk factor so if we only look at isolated bleeding as such uh, so the bleeding risk, uh, no matter whatever we call and say, probably is going to remain the same. But ischemic risk is something which is probably slightly higher. So my personal uh, thing or what I could uh, learn or infer from whatever I'm reading or uh, learning is that uh, we probably uh, tend to favor or tilt more towards uh, preventing these ischemic complications because bleeding, uh, whether no matter how hard we try, Still, that bleeding risk is going to stay constant. So that's my uh, take on this. Thanks, Praneet. Uh, I'm going to have uh, Rukmini Madam come in here one more time. Ma'am, what do you think about my proposal? Do you think this is something we should be thinking about this patient? I can understand the procedural aspect. You probably won't be able to comment. But uh, uh, these non-pharmacologic measures of, of, uh, of, of stroke reduction, what is your thoughts on it? Uh, I mean, I yeah, I agree with all of whatever has been spoken. Actually, with, in, starting from Somaraju's uh, point of view. So the question first, actually, uh, the question first arises is how much. So the thing is that you'll have to um, first measure out how much is the risk of stroke in this patient. Obviously, I mean, I, I think that must have done been done. So you probably has have looked at uh, Chad's vast score, Aspect score, all that. Yeah, so I, mean, I would say, yeah, so these are, it's of the order of seven to eight percent per year. That is what I would suggest for this patient. Okay, so, so that the, there is, as you said, atrial appendage closure has been tried for patients with um, AF who have a high risk of developing a stroke, and I think that's a good option to go for if you think that the patient, because you, I mean, you have to look at the has. If you have a has blood score, has blood score is uh, deals with uh, hypertension, poorly controlled. Already, that patient already has a bleed. The INR is a little labile. 
So all that uh, put together, if the Hazlitt score is more than three, then you cannot put the patient on oral anticoagulants. And actually, the the trials came up like that for um, atrial appendages, appendage closure to prevent stroke in patients who cannot be put on oral anticoagulants. I think that's a good option to go for. Though I really don't know how many, I mean, I haven't seen it being done, so I have no experience with it. But the studies have shown a good result with that. So, I, and so the thing is that yes, everything has to be individualized. You have to really look at the score, stroke risk, look at the bleed risk, and then take a call on how, it, how to go about it. The other question that I just wanted to know is that INR was 3.2. As a neurologist, we actually tend to keep our INRs a little on the lower side for patients with stroke. So we probably put it around 2 to 2.5, actually, instead of putting it at 2.5 to 3, because they tend to have a worse bleeding manifestation. Certainly, but meant that appendage closure is a really good point. So certainly this INR target, I think more and more we are getting comfortable with the INR around two, two and a half range as compared to three, three and a half range because we realize, in fact, if you look at most of the data set for warfarin back in the day, uh, patients are typically therapeutic only around 60, 65% of the time. So the whole aggressive anticoagulation is, uh, is dying off now. Now we are getting less and less aggressive on that anticoagulation front. So certainly, uh, from the cardiology side as well, uh, not that aggressive, but it's you understand it's very difficult to have a very precise control on INR to keep it exactly at 2.2, 2.3. Uh, let me bring in Chandramukhi Madam one more time. Chandramukhi Madam, what is your thought with the same clinical case that uh, I asked you earlier? Uh, what is your thought of LA appendix closure? Is it something that we should think about in these cases? Yes, uh, I agree with you that uh, we can uh, LA appendage closure closure is a good option in this case because uh, uh, he has a high risk of both the stroke and uh, bleed. So LA appendage will be a good option in this case. Thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Uh, anybody has any other suggestions? I'm going to ask Somaraju sir about his opinion for this particular. Uh, therapy option that I that uh, I wanted to discuss. Anybody has any other thoughts on this? Uh, so, Maharaj, sir, if you could unmute yourself and uh, share your thoughts about uh, in this particular patient, do you think we are going to do any justice by even talking about uh, LA appendage closure in him? Actually, several years ago, we tried to do a trial on uh, LA appendage closure from the time to now. LA appendix closure is slightly better off now with uh, uh, complication rates uh, acceptable, but it's uh, uh, not a common procedure in this country as it. So you must discuss this openly uh, with the family again. And uh, again, I want to go back on saying that if you want to do anything like that, and even after that, uh, say LA closure, the chances of embolic risk still remains a small percentage. It has to be shared with the family. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, Dr. Praveen, you had anything to add? <clears throat> yeah, I completely agree with uh, Samarajit, sir, because uh, uh, the number of procedures of LA appendix are very less in and uh, the concept of risk is still the same. And, uh, 
the morphology of yellow and uh, i would like to think of uh, those issues also the velocity is affected uh, in the yellow appendage what is the velocity before considering uh, uh, choice of yellow appendage and la dimensions la dimensions everything so it's not a uh, uh, i would like I don't think it's uh, not a thing which I would uh, go with my patient. Thank you so much, Dr. Praveen. And uh, since we did talk about device for, for maybe a minute or so, I'll just share with you. So there are two devices currently available in the market. There are actually three devices, but the third one uh, really don't have uh, uh, good experience. Uh, so the first one is the Watchman, which has got the highest international experience. And uh, early on, Watchman got a bad name because of very high complication, about five six percent procedural complication. It was very high, and that was attributed to the how the um, device was designed, because LA appendage is a very thin. It's a paper thin structure. All it requires is one catheter to go there and rupture it. So um, at that time, devices were not very friendly. It was a first generation device. The second generation watchman that came around, that was the complication rate I was talking about, which uh, in the first uh, data set was four and a half percent, and in the second data set was less than one percent or 0.5 percent or so. Uh, that certainly gave uh, a boost uh, to the international society, and this led to approval of watchmen. Uh, but still, in India, problem with watchmen, uh, number one is the cost. It's a little bit costly device. And secondly, the expertise, as everybody pointed out, that it's not a routinely done procedure. It is not a very difficult procedure, but certainly not a routinely done procedure, and there is a learning curve involved. On the other hand, in India, we do have uh, uh, the Abbott device called Amulet. Abbott also came with the first device called uh, ACP, or Amplatzer cardiac plug, which was a first generation device, again, not very friendly. And uh, although ACP did not have any trial that was done, uh, Amulet is the second generation device which is available to us at a reasonable cost as compared to Watchmen and reasonable also in cardiology. We talk about a few lakhs, a couple of lakhs rather than thousands. Uh, and uh, the second generation device also does not have any randomized data, uh, but it has got uh, good registry da data with it and uh, much more user friendly device. But again, not many cases being done around in nationally, let alone in a hospital or a center. Uh, Prano, yes, sir. Can I interrupt here? Yes, sir. So, please. Uh, uh, these devices are easier to uh, deploy for an average Indian cardiologist because they have so much experience in septal puncture and balloon, mitral balloon volumeplasty. And uh, this process is easier than mitral volumeplasty. So, if, if the cost is not an issue, the availability is not an issue. The family agrees, and uh, if there is a definitive indication, uh, it, uh, most of our Indian cardiologists will do well. Whoever is doing mitral alloplasty. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. So yeah, so cost and availability. I think there is no, there is uh, any procedure, any device talk is incomplete unless uh, we do talk about the cost. So emulate. If I have to uh, recollect, the device cost is around two and a half lakh rupees. And the overall procedure cost to the patient comes around three and a half to four, depending on how much your hospital charges. I agree with you, sir, that most of the Indian cardiologists who have been working for some time, they are very well versed working at LA space. Uh, people in United States and Europe, they are not very comfortable working in the LA space other than electrophysiologists. 
But uh, in India, interventionists, they are quite comfortable working within the LA space. The only thing I want to add, if any of the audience who do... Again, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Anand. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the audience who uh, may uh, participate in uh, LA appendage, the only thing I want to add other than your own experience of working in LA space is that you never enter LA appendage with a wire. Always try to enter with a pigtail. That was one thing we learned in the first Watchmen trial that a lot of the times we were entering LA appendage with a wire. And no matter how soft your wire is, we realized that was causing a lot of perforations. So the traditional teaching is you put the wire in the uh, pulmonary vein, put a pigtail, and then now you put your pigtail in the appendage and exchange it with a wire and do all this. So the idea here is if you can reduce your procedural complications, then certainly emulate over the long run is going to be both cost effective as well as less riskier in selected subset of patients like the one that we are talking about right now. And uh, uh, as far as Watchman is concerned, it is that device costs around seven, eight lakh rupees. And certainly there the cost effectivity may or may not suit a lot of patients that we have. Uh, but device closure is something that we should think of in this particular case. And uh, uh, I mean, at the sound and at the cost of not sounding humble, I must say, that we discussed this for around 35 minutes in this particular uh, meet where we had uh, cardiologists and everybody uh, uh, opining. And there also device closure did not come as one of our first thought process. And this is, this is probably one of the reason why our case experience is very low because uh, uh, we are not really looking at those particular cases and uh, we are mostly erring on the side of not giving anticoagulation, which truly speaking for me is a disservice because we do need to reduce their stroke risk uh, somehow. And uh, amulet currently is a very reasonable cost-effective way. Watchman has already been practiced. I know in Hyderabad, there had been few cases done. And again, few cases. It's not like one center has done 10 cases. So it is a... Uh, it is a less uh, frequently done procedure, partly because uh, the patient selection is uh, not that robust. So that was my thought about it. And whenever I talk about non-therapeutic uh, or non-pharmacologic uh, stroke prevention, it doesn't start and end at LF and disclosure. I, I listed a host of other measures that we should definitely discuss uh, with the patient and the family before we embark upon any of this. Remember, you put an emulate device, the patient goes home, has a fall again. No matter how much you prevent, they will get bleed again. So you have to take a holistic approach and work accordingly. So that was my thought about it. Uh, anybody else has anything to add? Uh, Praneet, did that, did that uh, uh, address some of the concern that we were having? Uh, and uh, one of the things that I do want to highlight in cases like these is once you put a device, you can very well keep them on single antiplatelet for the rest of their life, and that too a low-dose antiplatelet, and they typically do fine. Uh, so, Praneet, your thoughts on this, and I would invite anybody else to... Yeah, yeah no, uh, so the the kind of summary that you gave about uh, uh, LA appendage closure devices was uh, good. 
so yes uh, as you rightly said uh, particularly when we put a, a device which is a bit expensive uh, the general tendency is that uh, people expect uh, the results to be amazing or they don't expect any more stroke but as i said the risk of stroke is not going to be eliminated if doesn't go and the the need for anticoagulation doesn't go it's only that the risk reduction is slightly better compared to not doing anything uh, this i believe is the biggest uh, hurdle or the challenge uh, to drive the point uh, for the patient and the attendants uh, probably that is why equally it is uh, not that adopted in our uh, practice but uh, definitely for someone who can understand about what we are achieving by putting in uh, the device uh, in these patients we definitely should consider uh, it doesn't come as a thought process particularly in uh, when in a day to day practice uh, most of the times it uh, this thought comes in academic discussions or during those seminars and all but maybe if we keep talking about these things even uh, during our regular practice that this thought comes in and for those deserving we can uh, definitely give this option of uh, la appendage closure thank you pranith uh, anybody else has got any other thoughts on the topic that we are discussing we are 835 so i would like to close but before that uh, i invite uh, any other suggestions from anyone okay if not then i will certainly do the closing remarks uh, somaraju sir i want your opinion one more time i remember asking you uh, getting your feedback on this session one and a half months ago when uh, we had you for the first time now i believe you have been with us for about 6 weeks now uh, give us some feedback about how we can make it better or how should we go forward with this uh, i would say uh, it's an extremely useful session and don't be uh, taken away by the number of people attend and don't attend if good things are done it has to be done even when uh, very few people attend or nobody attends and i used to have a, an experience uh, i used to say even if you have one student you have to still take the class and uh, when i say even half student attends you have to take the class half student means there is one student who comes but he is sleeping so continue and you are doing well and i am learning a lot of things and uh, it's good for all of us good for medicine thank you so much sir uh, pranith you already summarized it uh, if you could just uh, give your closing comments uh, for this session yeah so uh, i i like today's session a typical uh, opd case uh, scenario maybe a problem both for a cardiologist and a neurologist about starting an anticoagulation after a bleeding event few learning points about uh, subdural hemorrhage uh, uh, leaves at the residual risk of uh, bleeding again because of the empty space created uh, do no harm principle uh, being highlighted by dr somraju and uh, others so uh, and uh, taking into consideration uh, or talking to patient and the family knowing their needs and trying to explain non pharmacological measures about uh, modifying their uh, space workspace uh, using a can not to get up in the night time for urination and uh, correcting the deficiencies of vitamins uh, highlighted again uh, to be considered before and all and uh, yes if need arises to do anticoagulant start with lower dose
to give them the option of LA appendage device closure as well. So this is my uh, take on this. Uh, thank you for those uh, suggestions. It was really a good session. Need for these closing remarks, and with this, I will close the session. I thank Dr. Rukmini uh, to join us for this guest uh, for this session. Uh, I also thank all the attendees for today. We would love your feedback. So, if you have any constructive criticism, please uh, share it with us. We host this session every Wednesday at 7:30, and the link that you use to join, you can use the same link for future sessions as well. These sessions are recorded, and uh, the recordings are there on podcast on YouTube. I run a bit um, behind in uploading them, so pardon me for that, but eventually they will show up. So on podcast or YouTube, you can simply just search the weekly huddle and you will get the past recordings as well. If you do want any of the recording email to you, just shoot me an email and I'll be able to send you that. Uh, thank you again for joining and participating in this uh, excellent discussion. Good night and I hope to see you again next Wednesday. Thank you. <laughs>